Welcome back to another episode of Textual Healing. I'm Mallory Smart. Today, I'm joined by writer, filmmaker, and critic Scout Tafoya. But to back things up, I'm going to give the ELI 5 of Textual Healing. It's a weekly podcast that interviews writers about music, books, and every other random thing that drives them. You can show your love to those authors and to Textual Healing by checking out our Patreon, following us on Twitter at PodHealing, rating us on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing on Spotify. But more importantly, back to Scout. In this episode, we mostly concentrate on his book, But God Made Him a Poet, watching John Ford in the 21st Century from With an X Books. But we also tackle Scout's writing process, weird fun facts about John Ford, that time Scout tried to make a documentary about a band and it didn't go well, and the fact that he was once in a band himself. I know, wild. There's just so much more of everything. So let's just dive right into the show with Scout. Hello, how's it going? Good, pretty good. We're going to hope not to do any weird blackouts this time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I should say, uh, actually, let me check to make sure that this is actually true. Um, yeah, I was hearing like thunder and lightning outside my window. So if I, you know, get lost in the feed, do you still have it? Yeah, I'll still have it. The only issue is if me and my crummy electricity goes out, then we're fucked. Gotcha. That's right. I keep saving now every 15 minutes, so... Then at the end of this, I get to just, like, parse through everything and be like, which one's the whole recording? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we could thank my building for that. What are you going to do? Like, their power still (coughs) goes out now occasionally. And they're like, I think it has to do with the storms a couple weeks ago. (laughs) And it's like, I don't think it works like that, guys. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what I'll do just to be extra careful is uh, record on my end as well. Um with the little microphone that I've got here. Perfect, because I actually usually ask a guest to do that, so I just kind of forgot to ask you to do it as well. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you using to record? I'm using an old device called an H4N made by a company called Zoom. Um, I've had it since probably 20... 13, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hazy on the details of this because I had another one that we used to use. We used to use this for making films. It was our primary, you know, audio recording system. Um, and at some point the old one died and I bought a new one. Um, but I don't remember exactly when that was, but it's, it's been, it's been several years. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm hooked up to my regular mic and as a precaution, I have my iPhone and it's being balanced by an old AI book, the latest uh, with an X books, so much heart, and a VHS of the Relic. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the Relic. Yeah, I actually haven't seen it yet. Um, I was at John Nix's screening for his latest documentary at uh, Analog. It's in Chicago. Yeah, that's it's, right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. And I saw the VHS, and, like, it was in a box of, like, three VHS things, and I was like, I'll do it. (laughs) Because 
there was a minute there where it's like, I don't have a VCR. And then my fiance was like, oh, no, I've actually been like redoing all VHSs and like converting them to digital. So we do have a VCR. And I was like, well, there you go. Perfect. Perfect. Now we just need something to like uh, an adapter to hook it up to our TV. It's uh, that shouldn't be too hard to find. I would think they used to make those things all the time at the hardware store, you know, like the circuit cities of the world now that those are gone. But um, I can't oh, that's imagine a nostalgia finding... trip. I know. Right. Or uh, Radio Shack, too, I guess, is out of business. But uh, these things still exist. Um, it's actually um, it's the director of the Relic's birthday soon. Peter Himes was born. Uh, 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 what the hell day was it? It's the. The, I, I don't remember exactly, but it's his birthday is in like a couple of days. So happy birthday, Peter Hines. Oh, wow. How old is he turning? Siskel He's and 80. Ebert gave him two thumbs up for this movie. Yeah, they should have. It's a good film. Um, I like he, on the original VHS like, boxes, they would do that like right away on the front cover of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Because it used to, that was everybody's response to criticism. I mean, it truly was they were it, you know, it was like wild to think that there was a period of time there where you had, you know, Jonathan Rosenbaum and Andrew Saris and Molly Haskell and, uh, Jay Hoberman and all these people, like, you know, people who really were getting into the, the, the real stuff of avant-garde and, you know, genre cinema and stuff, but really all that anybody cared about was the, the Siskel and Ebert rating. And then later the, uh, Ebert and Roper rating. Mm-hmm. It's just um, every time growing up in the 90s, how many thumbs? Yeah, exactly right. Um, Never mattered about stars or anything, just thumbs. <laughs> there was the occasional star. I think if you couldn't get Siskel and Ebert, then you would go for the stars. Or if one of them liked it, you would just you would go to their review because uh, what they were writing for the Tribune and the and the Sun Times, I think. Um, yeah, and, I do know they're Chicago or they were Chicago. They were, yeah, they were both Chicago guys. Um, that's, there's, there's still a statue in uh, Champaign-Urbana um, of Ebert sitting outside of the, the theater he used to go to. I've only been to Ebert Fest once, um, but it was a blast. And, you know, I got to see Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is the one movie he wrote um, at, like, midnight or something like that with Carrie Rickey and a few other people. It was just, like, the best possible way to see that film. <laughs> um you just gave me a very good reason to go visit U of I. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, they got a great little theater there. I think it's called The Art. Um, and uh, the Style Brewery is also right there, and they do great things. Um, that, was a very, that was a very drunk weekend. <laughs> the weekend I spent at Ebert Fest 2018. I was going to say, um, my only experience with U of I is that almost every one of my siblings went there. Oh, yeah? And they're all the stereotypical U of I, fighting Illini, wearing very racist war paint. Jesus. bar crawls. <laughs> yeah. I know. Hey, it, it kind of goes in to your book, you know? It's true. A it's very bit. true. Yes. It's, we simply have to constantly keep both the idea of progressivism and the history of racism in our heads at both times, because otherwise... You know, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, like, we have to remind the good people of textual healing that, hey, the fighting Illini is a really, really racist mascot. But they retired <laughs> the chief, so that's good. And they don't have the chief on their shirts anymore. 
Jesus. Well, I guess that's, you know, small, small miracles. But uh, I was able to go to the basketball game. I don't know if this is something to brag about or not. This could be a horrible thing. (laughs) Where they did the last dance of the chief. Oh, boy. That's Is is that a bragworthy thing? I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if bragging is the word for it, but it definitely is the kind of thing you need to write a short story about, you know, or like a piece of short uh, nonfiction because, you know, actually actively being there for for the the death of racist traditions is is. Uh, I mean, I won't say that it's all that unique in this country because it's like every state, every city has its own, you know, completely backwards thing that they've been holding on to forever without realizing it. Um, and I think that that's also like kind of an intrinsic part of American life is like I, you know, the, when the, when they started taking down Confederate monuments a couple of years ago, like more than a hundred years after the end of the Civil War, like, you know, that must've been exciting to be there, but also like horrible because it made you realize just how long those things have been standing up there, uh, with no particular, uh, uh, you know, moral undergirding. See, the fun thing is, this was, like, maybe only right in the beginning of YouTube, so I didn't know quite how racist they went. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't until I saw that in person of a white boy dressed as an Illini chief doing the craziest, like, I don't know what dance. Right. And then like at the from end, fucking like the, like the, the Broadway Peter Pan style stuff. Yeah. It is like, so yeah. And then just immediately all the drunk white people just ending and saying chief, like what the hell? Yeah. So that, that, that was a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and certainly, you know, that's the, the, the kind of difficult thing to, to, constantly wrap your head around while you're writing about John Ford or like the Western in general is the idea that like, yeah, obviously those attitudes existed forever, you know, and were bolstered by everything from, you know, newspapers to, you know, um, just like the decor at shops and stuff like that, you know, like the, the, the cigar store, the, the, the very bizarre trope of the cigar store Indian and all that shit. Like it was, it was everywhere, but also it was so much more, you know, easily laundered when Western started being taken seriously and Stagecoach was the movie that really got the Western going again um, as far as, like, being considered of artistic merit and also, you know, like, the kind of thing that you could show not just to kids but to adults as well to give the sort of well-rounded cinematic experience. And very few directors made movies that dealt with Native Americans in a way that was you know, at all progressive. And, and, you know, then you had people who just didn't touch on it at all because they were trying to be progressive in their way, but didn't really, uh, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't know how to touch the subject without uh, embarrassing themselves. So they just kind of left it alone. There's, um, it there's a number is of one of those better policies of, uh, better not touch it if you can't do it the right way. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's the, the, the amount of people now, you know, like Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out in a couple of months. Um, I was just about to mention that. Go on. Yeah, no, literally, you know, that's Scorsese in, in, in trying to tell a story that I think makes sense to him because nothing really speaks to Scorsese quite like the idea of the everyday violence of, you know, colonizers. I mean, you, you know, you can say Americans, but, you know, in, in the case of something like Silence from 2016, it, it sort of extends past 
America and into the European version of colonization as well, that, you know, what he's, what he's interested in is the ways that people just take things that they want. And that's true of Taxi Driver, and that's true of The King of Comedy, and, you know, it's true of uh, The Color of Money and you know, every other thing. And, you know, that's kind of why something like Age of Innocence is sort of uh, on the outside of his uh, periphery, because it's two people who want to take something but can't ultimately bring themselves to do it because of propriety. Um, but anyway, it's, he, he, you know, he sought the, the help and counsel and, and opinions of, uh, people from the tribes that, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon centers on. So he's not to go in, you know, blindfolded and make a bunch of mistakes. And there are still, I think, reasonable arguments to be made about whether or not this is, you know, his story to tell. You know, I remember seeing that when the sort of press cycle first started, um, friends of mine, you know, talking about whether or not this was still something that a white director should be after. And unfortunately, because I, I like, I like movies as much or more as I like, um, (laughs) my own politics. It's, 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 you know, like I have to admit on the one hand that like, yeah, no, this is perhaps not the best way to tell the story. But at the same time, I couldn't be more excited to see this movie. (laughs) You are by far not the only person I have spoken to who is psyched about this movie. So, yeah, it's uh, when I know. did the Barbenheimer weekend. Like, you have no idea how many people message me and be like, "Did you see the trailer?" And it's like, I saw the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> but so you wrote a book about John Ford. Okay, wait. First, let's introduce you, Scout. Who are you? <laughs> Let's pretend we've never met each other. Go off. Okay. Um, my name is Scout Tafoya. Um, I grew up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. I'm currently in uh, Massachusetts. I have been a, I guess, a professional film critic for 10 years. Um, and before that was uh, an amateur um, for about five years. Um, I've made, I make feature films whenever I get the opportunity to do that. I've made 30 of those. Um, I do, you know, basically all the, all the stuff for that with editing and doing the scores. And, uh, I like playing and writing music and I, uh, I have two books out. I wrote a book about Toby Hooper, um, that was published in 2021 at the height of pandemic times. Um, and my second book, but God made him a poet is, uh, is out now. It's about John Ford and, and, his legacy and what it means to watch problematic art today. Um, and you know, the sort of increasing unwillingness of people to keep two ideas in their heads at the same time. Um, and you know, the sort of tendency to want to throw history. We don't like away. Um, so as not to be bothered by it, uh, which is an understandable impulse, but it's just not one that I think is, is the healthiest thing for a thriving culture. Um, but, uh, and then, um, I do video essays as well. Um, those are like, you know, using the movie to talk about the movie. It's videographic criticism. And I've been doing that since, uh, since 2013 as well. Um, we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary of my series, The Unloved, uh, for RogerEbert.com, which is all about movies that, um, didn't get their, their fair shake when they first came out, including, of course, Peter Heim's The Relic, um, which I did probably for before like three or four years ago on the series but yeah so i do i do lots of stuff (laughs) i will say you're a busy boy (laughs) 
all work, no play. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just I just I guess it's just like good that I I like doing the stuff that I like you know can sort of keep the lights on doing because I've had you know a series of terrible jobs. I've worked in restaurants and bars and offices and everything else, and I just don't really have the temperament for it. Um, I'm also you know spoiled in that when I stopped liking it, and you know obviously when when COVID first happened, I was like I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. I think I'm just going to try to be a writer actually, you know, uh, and you know only 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 occasionally got to the point where it seemed like that was a, a terrible idea and I was going to be uh, living in the poorhouse. <laughs> I think it's a terrible idea every day, but I keep doing it. I mean, what else are we going to do, you know? It, it's just in us. I was going to ask, when you said that you uh, transitioned from an amateur critic to a professional critic, how did that transition happen? How do you clarify that? Oh, it was just that I started getting paid for it. Um, all right, money. Got it. Yeah, literally, that was all it was, is that, you know, I was writing on my own, you know, website for a lot of years. Um, it's funny, I was going back and reading... Um, the critical work of Lindsay Anderson um, to prepare for this just because I was trying to get into the mindset of like the writing that really mattered to me back in the day. And there are a handful of like big canonical titles like, you know, Great Gatsby and Catch-22 and Blood Meridian. But Lindsay Anderson was like the first critic I read that I felt like, oh shit, this is how you do this. Like this speaking with passion and authority and the sense of being kind of like driven nuts by what you see in the field that you, that you occupy. Like that was really, you can sense it in all of his sentences, just how frustrated he was with the idea that he was taking film and criticism as seriously as anybody ever had up to that point. And he was looking around at everybody who kind of was turning their noses up at film because at the time that he was writing, you know, and, and he did the bulk of his best work late forties into the fifties before he started making movies himself. Um, uh, you know that it was it was a frustrating time because a lot of really great stuff was happening like a lot of John Ford's best work that's done in the, in the 50s but then you've also got things like Douglas Sirk and um, you know Renoir is out there making those gorgeous technicolor kind of almost musicals and so there was it's you know that's there's this line he wrote a piece for Sight and Sound in, um, in 56 called Stand Up Stand Up and and it's got this quote that I I'm reading it again I reminded me how much how important that was to me when I was in college and just after writing, you know, my first rounds of, of critical, you know, uh, uh, thought, as he says, you know, if Louisiana story and, you know, uh, 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 listen to Britain that uh, is an art, then there is no other word for it. And if Renoir and, uh, uh, you know, Vittorio De Sica and Humphrey Jennings aren't artists, then there is, you know, then we'll have to come up with some other word because there is no other word to describe what they're doing if it isn't art. And like that kind of like clarity about what he was saying, I mean, admittedly, it was probably easier when you only had about 50 years worth of, of film culture to be sifting through. But at the same time, it was like, Jesus, to, to be young and reading that when he was writing, it must have been the most like lightning strike to your brain kind of a thing. And certainly it was to me when I discovered it in 2008, 2009, um, because I was obsessed with Lindsay Anderson's movies, and then you know you you, you look into the, the, the you know your heroes and you find stuff, and it became evident to me that he had been a a film critic and had this huge body of work, which most of which had been collected in a, a volume called Never Apologize, which is itself a John Ford quote. It's from uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, um, and I just like inhaled 
you know, all 600, 700 pages of this stuff. I couldn't believe just how like clear-eyed he was about everything and how, you know, it, 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 that's the, the interesting thing about it is that like, it doesn't, you know, for all of his high-minded ideas about what movies could be, there really isn't any pretension about it. And maybe it's because he was, you know, still young then, but also it's like, it, it, something about how fired up he was about it sort of stripped it of its pretension. It was just this impassioned plea, basically, that he was looking around at other people who thought that movies were this sort of lowbrow art form and that they would only occasionally produce moments or instances of greatness. And he was one of the few people in English letters who really thought that movies were an art form on a par with, you know, painting and, and the novel. So you clearly have a very diverse taste in movies as we discuss, discuss that. And obviously we just spoke a weird length about the relic and we've discussed horror movies. What made you want to write about John Ford? Um, I, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was sort of, um, coincidence. I, I, my friend Willow, um, Willow McClay, great, great film critic, um, in, uh, in uh, the middle of nowhere in Canada, uh, she wrote to me in like 2021, I guess, like kind of in the middle of my Toby Hooper press tour, such as it was, which was mostly just me answering email interviews and doing podcasts. Um, and asked me if I'd ever written about John Ford because she had seen something or was interested in whatever and was like, I'd be interested to hear what you had to say about, you know, his work generally. And it occurred to me that I, I think I had written about the searchers like once, like 15 years ago. And then since then I really hadn't written anything about Ford. I had written about, um, airmail, which is kind of a forgotten film of his from 1932 um, which was the basis of the Howard Hawks movie Only Angels Have Wings uh, about seven years later. And that's the, certainly the more uh, remembered of the two. Um, and so it just occurred to me, I was like, oh, I haven't seen any of this stuff. It would be a pretty cool exercise. And also having having a concrete set of um, tasks in front of me is always very helpful because otherwise I kind of get overwhelmed with all the stuff that it is possible to do. Um, I don't, I don't know how you are with like a to-do list, but I, um, I, I, I have gotten better about it, but like, you know, I, I write for my Patreon and I write two pieces of written criticism a week. Um, and so for a long time, it was just whatever I was watching now is what I was writing about. But then, you know, you sort of get to a panicky place where you're like, Jesus, I got to do this every fucking week. I got to find something else to write about. So Willow suggesting... John Ford gave me a very concrete project to work on and I would like occasionally break from it. But basically every week on the Patreon, I would just go through and, and write about a different uh, John Ford movie moving chronologically to get a better sense of, you know, his evolution and everything. And when John, uh, John Nix, our, our, our joint mutual publisher, um, uh, reached out to me last year and said, I'm starting this uh, publishing imprint and I want whatever your next book is. Um, it didn't take much for me to realize that I had enough material at that point to make something on Ford. And then he pushed me to do the more expansive uh, intro and, of course, to talk about the, 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 the sort of John Ford, the modern John Ford canon, all the, all the ways in which um, his style and movies have, have left a lasting impact on cinema, which was also sort of the broader argument of the piece as well, is that, like, yeah, it's very easy, um, and not to say that there's anything 
like it, it's not even problematic to me to say, yeah, this guy made a lot of art that falls in line with very old fashioned, um, highly racist uh, lines of thinking and nationalism and all that stuff. Um, you know, but you know, you must also then reckon with the fact that these movies with their extremely, uh, out of date, you know, xenophobic worldview. Um, and I'm not talking about all of them, obviously, but a handful of them, a handful of important ones. Um, they also helped create the next 70 years of cinema. Um, and so that to me, was, was sort of an important thing to do is to have a record, not just of the movies, but also what they did. And the fact that it was ultimately a, both a, a want for a, 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 a more in-depth critical body on the texts and a lack of such a thing that led to the creation of so many movies where you get something like Jane Campion's power of the dog, which is very much a response to John Ford or somebody like Walter Hill who hated the movie, the searchers. And so made all of his movies, Westerns that had to him, a, a, a mindset and a worldview that was diametrically opposed to uh, Ford's approach in The Searchers. He wanted it to be thornier than that, and he wanted it to be more clear, you know, that not everybody who watched Westerns and made Westerns had the, the, the outlook that The Searchers presents. Um, but then there are people who just kind of, you know, made Westerns in exactly that sort of vein. I mean, like, Clint Eastwood is certainly guilty of that, Um where in movie in a movie like Unforgiven, there's a lot of Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, or in a movie like High Plains Drifter, there's a lot of The Searchers. There's a lot of, you know, this kind of ugliness of the human spirit that isn't really meaningfully combated by the text itself. Um, you know, that I, I, I think that the ending of The Searchers is beautiful because it's Ford sort of admitting that this guy, this very evil uh, character whose horrible racist worldview we've been locked in with for the last two hours, that there really is no place for this guy uh, in a continuing society. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily then say that everything we've seen up to that point is not something that, you know, shouldn't be dealt with or reckoned with or whatever it is, because, you know, guys like that made the West as we understand it, because they were the ones who were killing people on their own land who had been there for, you know, generations and, there isn't really a, uh, a, a meaningful pushback against that in The Searchers. He tried to sort of do that in a 1964 movie called Cheyenne Autumn, but that movie just isn't very good. Um, and it just doesn't have the conviction of something like The Searchers. And Ford, of course, started his life as a pretty hardcore socialist, but fought for the United States in World War II and sort of became uh, sympathetic to the hard right um, in the fifties because they threatened to take away his, his, uh, his, his security clearance. Basically, it's kind of the same thing that happened to Robert Oppenheimer. Um, they, they, they wanted to take away his, his command of his field photographic unit, which by that point was entirely symbolic, but it was because he was hanging out with left-wing screenwriters. Um, and, uh, the last thing he wanted to do was not to be able to throw parties and call himself an admiral, an admiral anymore. So he kind of, Gave, he sold himself out and his ideals out in order to keep, you know, his grip on, on this fading way of life of his, which is very in keeping with the kinds of stories he used to tell. It is interesting that you actually pointed out that, like, he started off as definitely a little bit more left-wing and everything. Do you think that that showed a lot in his films? Obviously, he started off actually in the silent era, right? 
That's right, yeah. Um, he was making movies as early as 1915. He had followed his brother Francis to Hollywood and started... He, basically, he would do anything that a film set needed, and it was only by happenstance, essentially, that by, by kind of accident that he started actually, uh, being allowed to direct things. But it would have happened sooner or later. But um, the, the first surviving film of his is a film from 1917 called Straight Shooting, um, which is excellent. His first four silent movies are just remarkable. Um, or the, the first four surviving, I should say, is Hellbent, Bucking Broadway, and Just Pals. They're funny, and the form is amazing, and they've got this great editing, and it's just like, you can tell from the jump that this guy is extremely talented and kind of speaks the language of cinema. Um, but it really isn't until later that in the broadest outline, he, uh, he actually... Uh, makes movies about socialism. Um, he's kind of just making Westerns that make sense to him from a social perspective rather than a political one. But there are little pans to the idea that everybody is, you know, uh, everybody deserves the same kinds of freedoms and stuff like that. But the movies that he was making uh, for Fox, which was his primary employer for the first uh, many years of his career, was just kind of some stuff. Um, you know, there are exceptions. There's a great movie called The Iron Horse, which is like maybe the first like proper John Ford production because he went into the wilderness to make it with this huge, you know, moving camera crew and enormous cast of extras. And they like set up a little town to go film it. And producers would send him telegrams being like, can you please send us some footage? We've sent you so much money. We just need to <laughs> like, we just need some proof that we you have evidence that you're actually working <laughs> yeah exactly but it was literally it was like the stories that you read about like the old you know the movies about the creation of the railroad and the production of the movie was kind of like the creation of the railroad where it was like this little moving town with you know they had girls for all of the male actors and it was you know it was nuts um but in general you know the movies weren't openly socialist in the way that something like his Will Rogers movies were openly sympathetic to the Confederacy. Um, and that does kind of make it a thornier, uh, uh, you know, uh, field to till, but the, he made a great movie called the plow and the stars. I think I'm the only one who likes it, but, um, that was, uh, that was going to be his sort of masterpiece at the time. At that point, he'd been working for 20 years, um, and he was adapting a Sean O'Casey play, and his, you know, his sympathy was always with the free Irish um, against the English, and, and but that movie got tampered with, and so he kind of disowned it, but I still think it's very exciting. Um, but uh, And then later, he, uh, he made uh, Young Cassidy, which is um, sort of also, a, it's basically like the Sean O'Casey story, um, and... Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it was that, that kind of a firebrand political figure was somebody that he really admired because I think he couldn't really allow himself to be that in his own work. Um, n not until much, much later anyway, because I think he, he didn't really view art as the thing that was going to change the system. He saw art, I think, as more primarily a formal delivery device, um, but it was also explains why he got along. Like Sergei Eisenstein loved him, Orson Welles loved him, and he loved Welles, and he and Kurosawa were friends, and you know, so like it was it was the 
he proved that art could tra- like travel basically by being sort of a man of the world in that way. But he didn't really insist until much later in his life that his movies were pure reflections of his own political leanings. And a lot of that, I guess, is because of the times, where he comes back from World War II, you can't make a movie that criticizes the United States government. That's just not going to fly. And um, also McCarthyism and such. Exactly, yeah. And which, the Hayes Code before that. Yeah, um, which, you know, it was, you know, there were, yeah, there were a million obstacles to actually saying what you wanted to say, um, and 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 really owning that stuff and so i think for him it was at once easier to just make whatever script they handed you even though he would you know correct them and you know change things as he saw fit um but it you know part of that was why he didn't really become the director that people think that he is until stagecoach in 39 because he just kind of made whatever they gave him um almost like a day player but as an actor i mean a director non-actor yeah, very much so. And that was absolutely the way of the world back then, you know, that it was extremely rare. You know, that's why the story of somebody like Preston Sturgis is such a sort of a big deal even today, because he was one of the first independents who worked within a studio system, that he was so obviously and self-evidently talented that producers kind of had to let him get away with murder. Um, and they let him, you know, they, they let him do whatever he wanted to for as long as they felt they had to. And then, you know, after a few years and about six movies, they were like, okay, you're done. You're absolutely done. We're not doing this anymore. Because it sends the wrong signal to other artists, which is, if you're good enough, we'll leave you alone. And they didn't want that because they wanted to be the arbiters to which this stuff, uh, you know, uh, passed through. That They wanted it. I mean, and we're dealing with the same thing today. It's, you know, studio heads and producers who were smarter about movies back in the day than they are today um, didn't want to seem irrelevant. Um, and so... Even somebody like Ford, who, you know, despite box office flops and a difficult attitude and, you know, his, his impossibility at, uh, at being corralled, um, you know, he basically just kept working because he, that, I think, part of it was he didn't want to not work. I mean, you know, he had that classic attitude that if he wasn't on set, he wasn't happy. Um, and beyond that, if you kept working and kept making money for the studio, then they would never start to look at you as sconce and just be like, all right, do we still need this guy around, basically? Um, I mean, you know, he was like, extremely sensitive to criticism. Yeah, yeah. very much. Um, like, I think yeah. he couldn't see himself outside the scope of being anything other than a director. I mean, he almost seemed to look like a caricature, create a caricature of himself, it seems, towards the end. Absolutely. Um, was he, it more like the dark glasses and everything. Yep. Yeah. The dark glasses and the eye patch, um, and was always sitting down and hated giving interviews. And yeah, I mean, very much the, the, you know, the Milton quote that's in the zeitgeist now about becoming yourself brick by brick and then having to live with who that person was. And I think that, you know, the, the, the sensitive side of Ford was something that very few people saw who weren't in his inner circle. Everybody else just sort of, you know, that's why I love the, the bit of, of the Fablemans, which I think we talked about last time, mm-hmm. um, you know, where David Lynch just has that little bit of a thing where he's got this, you know, twinkle in his eye about, about this kid in his office. Because, like, yeah, maybe Ford wouldn't have smiled at Steven Spielberg and maybe he didn't. But also that was inside of Ford. It's just the thing that he worked really hard to keep people from seeing because, you know, like any sensitive kid who really wanted attention, you know, the slightest sort of crack in your armor just makes you retreat into yourself. You don't really want to deal with the version of you that other people understand or think they understand. You don't really want to be seen. 
you know, you want to, you want to just sort of be dimly and distantly understood and feared enough that people like want to be in your inner circle, but also never question you. (laughs) Now, eventually uh, he did become a Titan, someone who the studio kind of let do what he wanted. Yeah. Um, I mean, come on. I think he didn't even have it where like he wouldn't allow people even to swear on set. (laughs) That's entirely possible. My research, I don't remember that. Certainly yeah. nobody swore more than Ford did. Um, yeah, I think he had it on set that no swearing was allowed. And I think he also, you know, I could have my information totally wrong. He was also obsessed with playing music while um, working. Yes. Um, he used to keep um, uh, Danny Borzaghi, who was the director, I'm sorry, the, the brother of director Frank Borzaghi, on set to play uh, the accordion and a couple of other instruments. Um, they would play like bringing in the sheaves and stuff like that whenever he would like walk on set. Like Such he was... a strange mood. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and later he um, his daughter married a guy named Ken Curtis who was um, in the sort of he was in the frontier. I'm going to butcher this name. But it was like the Frontier Singers or something like that. It was Roy Rogers' old band. And these were just, you know, kind of crackers who sang these gorgeous harmonies. Um, and he would just kind of, like, have them on set singing and stuff like that. He loved that kind of atmosphere, which is not, like, completely unusual. Like, Fellini used to do the same thing where he'd have, you know, classical music playing all the time because all the, all the um, voices were post-dubbed. So it didn't matter what you heard on a film set. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, he wanted life to be this beautiful sort of, you know, idyllic, kind of picnic thing almost, you know, where there's just constantly drinks and food and all the people he loved around him at all times, which is like a very beautiful notion that doesn't really square with the, you know, tight shouldered son of a bitch that he comes off in most anecdotes and all the horrible things he used to say to his actors to get them to give the performances he wanted. Um, you know, that's, we talk about this now or like, you know, James Cameron is like another guy notorious for, very odd behavior on sets and Michael Bay is like that as well. But it's like in some instances, you know where it came from because Ford was famously the the worst asshole about everything on all of his film sets. And yet he got the best work out of everybody who ever walked in front of his camera. Like those John Wayne performances are actually heartbreaking and beautiful. And you hate to be like, wow, good thing. uh, John Ford made that guy make like feel like he wanted to die because almost nobody could direct him that well. Yeah, you gotta appreciate the outlook. God. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just imagining being on his set and having such fun, plucky music happening, but also being, like, totally wrung out by him. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, just the horrible shit he used to say to, like, Woody Strode and John Wayne and Ward Bond. Oh, my God, yeah. Can't just imagine. The mood shifts there. Like, a behind-the-scenes would right. be so perfect. Well, that's like... I, I, my, my friend Tucker and I talk about all the time making a kind of a like National Lampoon-style movie about John Ford's lifetime because there are all these incredible stories that you just, like, can't fucking believe happened. Where, like... John, John Wayne and Ward Bond both sat out World War II together. They famously both dodged the draft and didn't take part in combat and stuff. And so they were hanging out at, like... Like a, like a like a radar station or something like that as part of this like, you know, lame home service gig or whatever. And Ward Bond got himself so drunk that he, that John Wayne couldn't wake him up one day. So John Wayne poured vodka on his chest and lit it on fire. Oh, fuck. Yeah, exactly. Um, just these guys were 
maniacs. Like, they were complete and utter fucking maniacs. If you were to ever make this, I would watch it. I I really want to, just to, like, go through Joe McBride's uh, essential biography and pick out all the worst stories and just do that, just make a movie that is nothing but him behaving like fucking John Belushi or whatever. It's insanity. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's, again, the fun of it is going through and just trying to parse the fact from fiction, but also realizing that in, you know, true, for instance, that all the times that the legend was printed. But it's also like, you know, that's the fun of it is, is... keeping 9,000 ideas about who this guy was in your head at all times and trying to make sense of them as you move from one film to the next. You're like, wait a minute, this movie's about what? Okay. And that has nothing to do with who he was yesterday. And it's just, yeah, it was a, 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 a roller coaster. <laughs> I was going to ask, how did you keep that all balanced when you're writing? Are you the kind of person who has that kind of conspiracy theory board where you're connecting everything together or are you just uh, no, taking notes? I, I should do that a little more. Um, no, ultimately, I, so what I was doing was I was reading all of my research material as I was making my way through the films, um, and I could have done a better job, I think, in the book of constantly doubling back to the sort of initial political gestures that the new ones, um, you know, flew in the face of, because there are really beautiful and profound moments of empathy in early, you know, Ford stuff that I, you, you sort of forget about by the time. I mean, frankly, you, you forget about Ford the Silent Filmmaker by the time you get to like the 40s, and there's still 20 more years of movies left to watch. Um, it's just, it's such a vast body of work, but I, in general, like, have a pretty good memory about all this stuff. Like, there, I mean, you know, I obviously don't remember all of it, but it was, it was not hard to keep, broadly speaking, the floating, tempestuous Ford in my head as I kept going. Um, and then if nothing, you know, if I, if I needed to, I could kind of double back and see the entries I had already written. But also, the fun of the book was, was trying not necessarily to paint the most coherent portrait of him, but rather to sort of treat every movie as, you know, a, an opportunity to a write something exciting or, you know, hopefully exciting that people wanted to consume, even if you weren't, you know, a Ford diehard or anything. And like a lot of these movies, people would never have seen or or hadn't heard of is my guess. And, uh, you know, I wanted it still to be the kind of thing that you could get excited about, you know, flipping through and it didn't matter that you hadn't read it. It would still be, you know, good enough from a prose standpoint. Um, but no, it's, I, I have, I have a pretty good memory. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the lucky ones. Definitely. Yeah. So did you go in with any like real intent or you just wanted to go like film by film by film? Like what, what did you want the end product of the book to be? I didn't really have a sense of, what I wanted it to be until I was almost done. Um, when, you know, when I understood at a certain point that I wasn't just writing these individual pieces, that they were going to form a coherent whole, then it became about, you know, how do you take the lessons of this extremely strange life of a very prolific, and then you're very, connecting the dots. Yeah. And, 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 and trying to draw straight lines from, you know, his work and his life to today, basically, basically you know, like to, to say, even if you don't, I mean, perhaps especially if you don't think that Ford is the kind of figure that we need to still talk about because of the really abhorrent political view of a lot of his work, you know, here's perhaps why 
we do. You know, here's why it is still important to me to study old movies and to keep art history in, in the forefront of our heads, that that is always going to be the impression that I'll fight for in just about every case, with the exception, perhaps, of Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> I just... I've, I've never been moved by that, by her story or her movies. And so I haven't really understood that. Uh, I will say you definitely succeeded in introducing people to John Ford and everything, because unless you're a cinephile, I feel like he just kind of like fell by the wayside for our generation. What, I mean, you know, I guess, I guess that's the question is what, you know, what, what, if anything was your exposure to Ford? What was your impression of Ford, you know, before, well, I actually, <laughs> I originally set out to be a filmmaker, so I, I, I was pretty into Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't exactly say that, like, I was a big fan, but I definitely studied him quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not huge into Westerns, but I like the actual style of them, if that makes any sense. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So I think you actually did a very good job at making it very... Uh, coherent for somebody who isn't into film because I, I gave the book to my niece and she really liked it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, so you got a Gen Z fan. <laughs> and that's someone who only heard of John Ford because of the Fablemans. <laughs> I mean, well, that's the best the best review I could have hoped for. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, exa- you know, that's exactly the idea. Is that, you know, like, I, I think about... not so much an ideal audience, but just remembering that like my family will get a hold of it at some point, you know, and, and is it the kind of understand it? Right. Exactly. You know, like, you know, my mom certainly hasn't seen fucking half of these movies, but I do remember very specifically, you know, watching John Wayne movies with her when I was younger and just like that man as a cultural force and all that stuff. And so just like trying to remember that, there are going to be mostly people, I think, who read this and really not know half of the things that we're talking about. So it's like, okay, so like try to make it make sense, you know, from to to other people, and try to make it seem like even even the movies that are that are you know blinkered uh, ideologically are are you know that there's something to talk about there. And you know, I mean, certainly I would think that there'd be especially something to talk about because you know, what do you learn from a really really beautiful movie with ideas that mean that you can't recommend it to people <laughs> like you can't recommend the sunshine's brighter judge priest no matter how fucking beautifully put together they are because you can't tell people to go watch a movie that's like you know a, a love song to the confederacy it's it's not you shouldn't be doing that <laughs> i'm not even complaining that this is something you shouldn't be doing you just shouldn't be doing that and so putting it in the in, in, into a context that makes a little more sense of it was you know kind of a you know i i I certainly liked having that opportunity more than anything else where you get to be freer about describing something than you would if you were just running into somebody on the street or, you know, talking to a friend of yours about a movie and being like, oh, you should definitely see this. It's the most hideous movie ever made, you know, like, because then it gives it this kind of like, and I, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, like there's a cannibal Holocaust vibe to some of this stuff, which is like, oh, you haven't seen it. It's uh, horrible. It'll give you nightmares. You should definitely do it. (laughs) If you say that to the right people, they'll do it. <laughs> I mean, I used to be one of those people, you know? I, I used to track down all those fucking movies. Like, I, Oh, if someone tells me this is, like, the shittiest movie ever, I'll probably watch it. Right, yeah. No, I, I absolutely used to... Especially do... in my 20s. I was so yeah. into that. Same. Absolutely. Like, 
you know, I was, I was fortunate that when I was, you know, kind of getting out of high school and getting to college that movies like The Room and Birdemic weren't yet the kind of inescapable, meme you know, horrible, tacky things they are now, um, where you could still kind of enjoy them a little bit for the very personal and very strange and, of course, you know, failed things that they were. Um, but that also opened you up to looking for things that gave you that same kind of communal satisfaction of a movie just falling apart like a, you know, like a truck in a cartoon or something where it's like you're suddenly just looking at the engine block and all this stuff. Like Trolls a, too. Yeah, exactly. Troll 2. Um, but there are a million of movies like that. And I, you know, like I was very lucky to have friends in high school, you know, it's the, the Yonner Zombie thing, like people who wanted to watch this stuff with me and had as much of a blast enjoying it both ironically and unironically. Um, I mean, I would call that like the basement friend movie. Yeah, perfect. Situation. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, you know. And so we could watch truly excruciating things, but then also, you know, like fun things. And well, the, the other thing too is that, like, I, I I I would argue that one of the like kind of foundational basement movies is one or all of the Indiana Jones movies, and those are films with very confused, you know, political leanings that are, like. You know, all the weird anti-Asian, anti-Muslim shit in those movies that does not get answered in the slightest. And, you know, but those movies were extremely, like, popular. I mean, they remain extremely popular. We just got a fifth sequel fucking 50 years later or whatever it is. And, you know, and, and that's that's kind of the Ford thing is that in order to, to keep these things in the culture, you have to actually be willing to have a conversation about the things that they're doing as well as the things that they're not doing. Um, and I will I've, say... No one is willing to have the conversation about Indiana Jones, but go probably on. not. No, no. no. Um, I'm that's I'm doing the the, the the me and my 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 dear friend Tucker are doing a series on Spielberg um, cinematography, basically just the way that he uses the camera, and we kind of really go out of our way to to hammer home just how white privilegey a lot of those movies were. You know, that for every color purple, which is a really beautiful film in a hundred ways, but also is about the pain of somebody that Spielberg kind of really has to put himself out there to actually understand. And I think that it is a nice gesture that he tried. Um, There is Temple of Doom, um, where it's like, okay, yeah, so you really only care about this thing in certain contexts. And it's so easy for you to forget these things that even in Crystal Skull, where you're othering natives and turning them into, you know big you know window dressing you're turning them into central casting native americans again like it's just you know it's almost as if he expects genre to absolve him um and i guess to a lot of people it did because so happy i repressed that last indiana jones (laughs) (laughs) like i'll I'll trust you on that (laughs) i don't even mind it i don't even like i mean I, i mind that i mind the political part of it but i don't even think it's that bad of a movie um it's just it suffers from exactly the same problems that most Spielberg movies do when they are not geared towards a sort of I mean, I actually that's not even true. I was going to say because like a movie like Schindler's List, that's for liberal America. That's like very much for a liberal, you know, uh, uh, liberal to center audience. Um, people who think that watching movies is a political act um, you know, and that's a huge, huge part of the American population. But the thing is, those same people also swallowed up Indiana Jones movies with no problem. So it's, uh, 
you know, the one hand washes the other, I guess. Something about the American public really likes caricatures like Harrison Ford. I'm going to make Harrison Ford a caricature as well because <laughs> he, I, I, I don't see him as a human being. He is just the same guy in every movie. And I, I don't know, it's like that one stoic American, you have to be tough with no real feelings and stuff. Yeah, I mean, which again goes all the way back to John, John Wayne. Ford and John yeah. Wayne, yeah. There you go. I mean, that's very much, you know, what he was reaching for. And Spielberg, you know, Spielberg, there's a lot of Orson Welles in what he does, but I think that John Ford is, without much exaggeration, probably the single most important influence on Spielberg. You know, because you can see it in the way that he lets the camera define spaces and tell stories. And, you know, that's very much where he got that from, that there wasn't a director doing that with a sort of aggressive yet poetic uh, mindset that Ford was. Um, And uh, I'm happy you said that because I was curious why you named the book, but God may have made him a poet. Well, that is also a Lindsay Anderson quote um, in a piece that he wrote um, uh, about Ford in, I believe, the 50s. He said John Ford wanted to be a a tugboat captain, but God made him a poet and he must make the best of that. Um, And, you know, I think that Lindsay Anderson, you know, perhaps most of any of Ford's regular critics um, saw what he was doing as poetry, um, you know, and that a movie like They Were Expendable or My Darling Clementine or something. These were not simply films about action or dialogue or political currents, but rather they were poems about the human spirit and and, uh, the many contradictions therein. And, you know, these are movies that you can look at their images and sort of hear poetic description of them during moments of silence. That They're films that allow you space as a viewer, um, which is becoming an increasingly rare thing in, certainly in the American cinema, but in cinema more broadly, that that there are movies that are generous in this way, that invite you in, but also, you know, allow you space to function and, and, and process, um, you know, that, which to me is like, you know, the, the most important thing that film has to offer is that, you know, there's this space of communion between you and, and what's happening on screen. It's why Chantal Ackerman is, you know, like the most important filmmaker to me, because those are movies that are designed for, you know, human thought. It's not simply that you are told constantly what to think. Um, if anything, you know, you're, you're very infrequently told what to think or how, but rather that you're given space to develop, you know, to, to reflect on yourself and the world broadly and arts and, you know, the, the purpose of a movie and all these things uh, while you're watching uh, her, her films. And I think Ford was very much like that where, yeah, there are, you know, very big, you know, action set pieces and lots of very quotable dialogue and, but all that. But, you know, you think about like the best moment to me in the quiet man is, you know, like two minutes where John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara don't speak and they're in this, ruins building getting rained on just holding each other and it's the most amazing gorgeous you know just this rhapsody to these two people and to people in general and it's like yeah that's that's movies <laughs> like that's that's what i want 
you can tell me all day long about what they're going through and everything, but to just see them in that space and to know who they are from the way that they behave around each other, it's like, God, geez, yeah, that's what movies could give you in a way that you can't get from anything else. That, you know, a, a book can describe those things quite beautifully, don't get me wrong, but, you know, just the idea, you know, that there is there was no equivalent, ultimately, to that sequence in The Quiet Man in, in the other art forms. Now, obviously, they have their other you know, incredible, splendid virtues. But that's, you know, that's, that's, it goes back to the Lindsay Anderson thing. It is an art form because if that's not art, then what is it? I am very happy you mentioned The Quiet Man because it's my favorite movie of his. Um, how aware do you think John Ford was about, like, how he was interacting with the audience? Because as you just said, like, he was actually giving us a very pliable emotional moment right there was he seeking that out was he trying to push that out was he like focusing on the sound and the way the actors moved how into blocking and all of that was he oh very much um you know it's he wasn't perhaps as as dogged about blocking as some of his peers were um certainly like spielberg is like the king of cinematic blocking and all that um but the, because Ford very rarely worked in um, larger aspect ratios, which meant that he was working with a square frame for a lot of his career, um, he knew the importance of where people were moving. Um, and so, like, you can see in Stagecoach, there's all these incredible shots of people walking up and down the Z axis of the frame um, through hallways and into shadow and in and out of light. Um, and that, I think, meant a lot more to him. The Z, the Z axis provided the depth that he couldn't get from the, uh, from the X or the Y because the frames were just not that big. And I don't think even when he was like, really the only like proper fully widescreen movie that really took advantage of all that stuff is a great movie from 1955 called the long gray line with Tyrone power. Um, and that is just like a, 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 a marvel of widescreen filmmaking. That's just the most beautiful shit ever. The quiet man though, you know, it's, it, it, it's a matter of him having obviously studied landscape um, painting um, and also, you know, knowing that that is a movie that occasionally really gets off this sort of like burst of activity from people. And so all that has to be very carefully planned. Um, but I mean, nothing happened by accident in Ford films, you know, not in the important ones. Um, you know, he, he, he knew, knew exactly where he was tugging at the heartstrings. He knew what was going to get certain reactions. Exactly right, because you know ultimately he was the first audience member that these things had to pass through. Um, you know, and he loved movies. He wouldn't, you know, admit all that stuff, but he really did. And you know, he was a fan of Carl Dreyer and Kurosawa, as we've said. And you know, he knew the things that really worked. Um, and certainly you can't make as many truly heart-stoppingly beautiful movies as he did without really understanding the, the, the effect of a close-up or, or faces on the frame or, or all that. And he got some of the most amazing, you know, kind of close-up dialogue sequences and things like that from his actors uh, of anybody in the period, where if you think about a movie like Casablanca, which has a couple of just amazing, amazing close-ups of Ingrid Bergman, you know, and you don't think of Ford as being that kind of a filmmaker, but he really was. It's that the big picture was so impressive all the way through that you're not necessarily picking apart the individual elements. And he's probably best known for shots that are wider that take in the full bodies of people, again, taking advantage of the squareness of the frame, 
I mean, the Searchers is, is definitely like the kind of gold standard of this, all the amazing ways that he finds to frame John uh, Wayne in uh, doorways, mm-hmm. you know, to make him look like this monolithic, just this kind of figure of myth. Um, but The Quiet Man, that was a movie he fought for a long time to make. Um, he, you know, he made Rio Grande uh, for Republic Pictures um, just to get permission to do it. And the guy who owned Republic, Herbert Yates, really didn't get art at all. He didn't get what Ford was doing. He didn't understand anything. And he fought him tooth and nail about every creative decision, but Ford held his ground as much as he could because this was the movie that he'd been dying to make for a very long time. And he had his perfect leading lady, like, just discovered Maureen O'Hara. And, uh, well, that, he didn't just discover her, but, like, he was, you know, he, he knew that she had exactly what the part called for. And he went back to the village in Ireland where he, you know, his parents were from and, you know, just steeped himself once again in the culture. And, you know, he always thought of himself as Irish first. And, you know, that was that was a really important movie to him. So, you know, I think that it's 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 a film where he was as careful as he ever was about every gesture um, and the placement of the camera and everything. So, yeah, I think that The Quiet Man, I mean, it's, it's just a fantastic movie. Like, it's, you know, the sexual politics are, are prehistoric, but it's so good. It's such a beautiful, moving film. It's such a great snapshot, though, of the time when you mentioned the sexual politics. Yeah. And you know, especially, like, I'm Irish, so uh, every time same. I show my fiance that be like hey look that's what it used to be like in my land (laughs) (laughs) oh way back in those several decades ago only (laughs) (laughs) way back in living memory (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i fucking yeah i love that film that's i both of my mom's parents were irish um and uh my sister's been back but i have not i really need to go but i don't don't travel Mm. nearly as much as i I ought to. I hope to go to Ireland maybe next winter. I have a lot of other traveling, sadly, to do prior, but yeah. Are you, is it going to be the honeymoon? Uh, I wish it would be, but no. Uh, (laughs) First, we have to do some like weird trip in Wisconsin with his family. Then we're going to Egypt, and then we have some other places we have to hit up. But Ireland is definitely next after that. Egypt, that is not a conventional honeymoon destination. No, there's nothing conventional about our lives at all. (laughs) Like, even as I look around my apartment right now, I'm just like, I don't think normal people would design their place the way I design my place. (laughs) Like, anytime anyone comes over, they're like, where's your dining room table? And I'm like, let me show you my amazing standing desk. (laughs) Like, I never even think to do those kind of things. That's why I'd be a bad director. (laughs) It's, I'd be know. good at the millennial eye. I mean, right. I don't know many people our age who actually have dining room tables and such. I was going to say, I mean, that sort of made those considerations a little easier. It was just, you know, I had to, when I started making movies, I had to like very clearly just like, you know, say to myself, like, listen, you're not, you're not going to, you, you don't have Godard resources here. You don't even have, you know, whatever you're, you're dealing with what is in front of you. So just make the most of that. And to me, you know, the bodies and faces of actors were more important in situations like that, where it's like treating the camera like a paintbrush, basically, and just sort of letting it go where it needs to go in order for the scene to sort of become what it must. 
where like I would love to have like Almodovarian, uh, you know, production design, all that shit, but that costs a shitload of money. And I never had that. Like I, the most money I've ever spent on a movie is probably five grand. Um, hey, that's still something more than I've ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think other than unless you count rent, which I guess I have to, um, I don't think I've ever spent more on, on any single thing than I have that one movie. Um, please tell me you spent the five grand on someone to come and play accordion while you're <laughs> directing. No, that's what I was for is I would, you know, if somebody would have a guitar on set or whatever, which was largely the case because, you know, we were making these things in our houses in our parents' houses and our apartments and stuff. Um, no, I, we did spend, I, I made a movie called house of little deaths, um, in 2012, um, we didn't release it for a couple of years after that, but we shot it in 2012 and it was set in a brothel in Philadelphia and we spent something like $1,900 on like underwear at the King of Prussia mall. Um, so that was a very interesting experience. I imagine the shopping experience would be the most interesting aspect. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and getting looks from many a cashier as they see me approving outfits in the Fredericks of Hollywood <laughs> Um, See, you need someone following you with a camera because I think the behind the scenes of that would have actually been more entertaining. <laughs> it's, we, we, you know, this is again, this is why I, this is, if, if, if I didn't remember all this shit, then I like should have hired somebody to follow me around. But thankfully, I kind of still have it all up in my head. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It'll make for either an interesting or a very tedious memoir someday. Do you have that attitude? Because I have that attitude too, um, where occasionally I'll be like, should I do this? And I'll just be like, do it for the memoir? Um, no, because I'm too self-conscious about everything. Um, like, I can, I can talk myself into a handful of things with enough planning and foresight and stuff. But it's very rare. I'm like trying to like do I'm like a little better at it now, maybe, but also like it's the kind of thing where like I have friends around here who will call me at like, you know, midnight and they're like, oh, I'm at this bar, you should come hang out. And like, you know, there's many a times where I'm like, no fucking way, I'm going to bed. But um, you know, trying to trying to embrace life a little more, but it's you know, I don't know. I mean I, I, I do have that attitude a lot, but occasionally, <laughs> occasionally I'll be like, do something wild. A little bit, occasionally. Have, like, a well, per capita. Right, right, yeah. A couple of, of impulse buys for the soul. Um, like, what? Like, what Like what are we <laughs> like what are we talking about? I, I don't know. One time I actually decided to just drive to In-N-Out Burger, just a uh, straight shot from Chicago to Dallas, just because I was craving one. And there's not one closer? No. That's wild. How long a drive is that? I would say... You know, I was asleep for a good portion of it because I wasn't the only person driving, and it took longer because we got hit by a flash flood while doing Jesus. it. And that didn't even stop us. We kept going. Well, hey, I mean, you've gone that far. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say only maybe like 16 hours as I Google it right now. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, how, how long will it take me to get to In-N-Out Burger, please? That's, I. you know, the middle of this country is still a great mystery to me because everything I thought I understood and, you know, again, being the know-it-all that I am, you know, I, I, I won my elementary school's geography B in the sixth grade. Um, 
And so, like, you know, you tend to think that when you when you do a fair amount of research that you actually understand where things are, you know, metaphysically and physically. But then I have no fucking clue actually what it takes to get from one state. Like, when you pass Illinois or Ohio, like, what the rest of the country is actually like and how far apart anything is or where even the states are. Um, I... I was I was very fortunate that I took a, a train cross country last year to get to Seattle, um, and it was incredible. It was like the most amazing experience ever. But every time we passed into a different state, I would go, "Wait a minute, this is this is here." <laughs> okay, how many states have you been to? Um, I'm gonna say probably like sixteen. Okay, it's not that many. So you're not a road tripper. Uh, no, I love driving and I love road tripping stuff, but it's, there just wasn't stuff to go do a lot of the time. Um, like, um, so my dad and I actually just, when, when the Ford book was out, we kind of celebrated by going to Monument Valley, um, which was amazing and just incredible, incredible place to spend time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this amazing series of like cabins that you can rent right overlooking the, uh, extremely expressive landscape, just like absolutely breathtaking. Um, and so we started in Texas, went to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, um, and then, uh, Where's drove that up. at? That is in, it's about an hour west of Austin. Um. I am writing this shit down. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next thing I'm doing for the me- memoir. <laughs> <laughs> but go on. Uh, Kingsland. It's in Kingsland, Texas. It's a, it's a bed and breakfast now. Or not just a bed. I'm sorry. It's not a bed and breakfast. It's a, it's just a restaurant. Oh my God. That's like so poetic. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. Um, I, so I, I, I took video. My dad took video of me reading from my Texas chainsaw chapter outside of the Texas chainsaw house. And then of me reading about, you know, the Ford cavalry Westerns, um, with monument Valley in the background. It was like my own little book tour. Um, it was really, really cool. And, but we went from Austin to Marfa and then up to Santa Fe and then uh, Miami Valley and um, uh, and then Las Vegas and finally uh, California, Southern California. We stayed with my sister and then went up to L.A. for a day. Um, and, you know, that was fun. But, you know, it is eight hours in the, in the car every day, which, you know, if you're if you're. If you're not prepared for it, you know, it, it does take it out of you. And my dad wouldn't let me drive. <laughs> I think probably because um, there have been a handful of situations when I was a kid that probably still make him nervous. Um, I mean, you know, as in the Lost, that horror cast episode, I still have a Mini Cooper that's at the shop right now, so I'm right there with you. Oh, that's right. That's right. I told you the Vermont Mini Cooper story, and you've got one too. And, you know. Yeah, so many actually, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I still insist that I could do very long road trips. So, I mean, not in that car you couldn't, but no, not that one. Yeah, no, that car, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to get fucking stranded. That car um, is like a jinx on me. I don't know what the hell's the problem with it. <laughs> it's just a bad car. It's just not a good car. I mean, I it's would not... say that I never had any other car issues before, but I did actually hit something <laughs> on the way home from Nashville, Tennessee once. I still don't know what it was because it was like a back road. And I thought like, I was like, oh my God, did I kill something? 
we actually all got out because it's like I woke up everybody in, in the, the car. car. Right. Yeah, because all of them were like, are we dying? And I was like, I don't know what I hit. I hit something. <laughs> but we couldn't find whatever I hit. Well, there you go. Innocence. Innocent of all charges. I know. If somebody died that night, it sure as fuck wasn't me. <laughs> I The thing that I, like, I kind of wish that I had done more, and I, like, I, there's a movie I really want to make that sort of, like, has a little bit of this experience, you know, in it was I never toured with the bands that I played with. I mean, I'm saying bands. It was really only, like, a couple of us. But that, to me, struck, is, like, the cross-country road trip experience and never never got a chance to. Um, what just kind because, of music did you play? Oh, I don't even know how you classify it. It was, I guess it was just kind of like indie rock stuff. Um, these if days you were trying to be a band. Cause let's face it. We were all trying to be a band. We were all, yeah, absolutely. It's true. It's, I do. Who this were is, you I trying do, to be? We were trying to be, um, arcade fire. Um, sounds you know, right. Yeah. This was 2006. Um, oh, that so, definitely sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. The nation had neon Bible fever. Um, and, uh, this was, so I made a movie, um, called super connected, which was about my obsession with Canadian indie music. Um, and I had like a true, almost famous experience with, uh, somebody who I, I, I shall remain nameless because I like chased this guy across three years and many different States and parts of Canada trying to get this interview. And I finally got him. And then he watched the movie and he was like, yeah, you can't release this. And it was like he had very personal reasons that he didn't like the movie. And he was like, just send me all the footage and I'll edit it and we'll fix this together. And I was like, oh, okay, how do you want to do that? And then I never heard from him again. Damn, did you like write something about an airplane that's about to go down, someone confessing to be gay? It was jumping very... Jumping into a pool saying he's a golden god? It was... I mean, it really wasn't even that bad. It was. It was... There was just personal information about his life in that movie by virtue of the fact that he had made it a big part of his own art and the band that he kept around him, that talking about the music meant talking about his private life in a way that that wasn't true necessarily of a lot of the other people in the doc. Um, so I was just like press falling because I was like 21 or whatever when I, when I got the phone call from him. And, you know, it's, it's literally, you know, I, this is, this is true. This is a true story. He called me at two in the morning on Thanksgiving and he was drunk out of his mind. Um, and was like, this is, you know, you're like a bad filmmaker. You're like a bad artist or whatever the, the thing was that he was screaming at me. And it's like, you know, this is like my first big project. I was still like, I was like just getting out of film school. And I was like thinking that this movie was going to be like my, you know, ticket to the fucking big times or whatever. And then to get that phone call, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. never mind. Uh, <laughs> and so I just like sat on the footage for about six years until finally uh, my girlfriend at the time was like, why don't you just finish it? Why don't you just like do something with it? Um, and so I did. And there's a version of it online that still omits this guy's name because again, I don't really want to get sued or open up that bandaid again. But that was the thing that always bummed me out is that in Almost Famous, you know, Billy Crudup winds up being tricked to go do it, but he does apologize to Patrick Fugit for, you know, not running the story. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting on that particular you visit. You want that apology? Yeah. <laughs> Be like, yeah, no, I called them. Everything's correct. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I called the Toronto mm-hmm. international film festival and got you a time machine. You can go back and release this movie. Um, yeah, it's, uh, one of a million little moments. Like I, 
I was about to send um, a movie of mine to Bruce Sinofsky, who is, uh, along with Joe Berlinger, they made those Paradise Lost documentaries and uh, My Brother's Keeper and a couple other things. And, you know, my 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 mom had, had met an acquaintance of his and, you know, was like sort of vetching about the fact that, you know, I was having all this trouble sort of getting my movies into festivals and stuff like that. And somebody was like, I know this guy, Bruce Sinofsky, he's like a, he's a great filmmaker and he's actually somebody who will help your kid. Send him the movies, tell him I sent you, blah, 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 blah. And I did, and then he died the next week. You have some shit luck, my, my dude. Wow. Yep. Yeah. I uh, thought I had bad luck in life. Uh, it's been, yeah, it's been pretty wild. I know, it feels so bad for someone just to be like, whoa, that is rough. <laughs> I mean, you know, but what else are you going to do? I know, it's one of those, like, I don't want to make you feel shittier, but yeah, that sucks. It sucks. It, it fucking sucks. It's... You know, it's, I'm at the point in my life now where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get better about, like, actually taking stock of my accomplishments or whatever, because for so many years, nothing was happening. And every chance that I got where it seemed like something might happen completely fell apart in the most flamboyant way possible. And I was like, Jesus Christ, is this just what it's like? Like, is there, <laughs> is there no fucking, you know, escalator that I can take? So Rather than, that is your memoir. Yeah. Right there. It's true. All and the almost. All the almost. Jesus. Yeah, Christ. And there have been a, a lot of them. Um, I, yeah, God, I was, I was, again, this is, I'll, I'll, I'll speak about this in like the broadest terms imaginable. I had a phone call with somebody who, like, if they had like shown the right, like, interest or whatever in the movie we were making, it would have like gotten us the budget. And, it seemed to be, like go really well, and then we got off the phone, and their manager was like, "Yeah, no, that's no, it's not going to happen." I was like, "God damn it!" <laughs> oh man, and you know, it's 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 just got to the point where I like I don't trust the usual way of of doing things. I mean, like when I got out of film school in whatever it was, 2011, and everybody at Emerson was going to Los Angeles because that was the way that you were supposed to do things, and you know, go be a PA, go be somebody's assistant and all that shit. And because, again, I was completely spoiled and just, like, you know, thought of myself as being above that, I was like, I'm not fucking doing that. I'd rather just make things on my own terms. And, like, I did, you know, to whatever credit you want to give me, like, I actually did make all the movies and there, you know, there's problems with them because we made them for zero dollars and zero cents. But, um, you know, there it is. It's It's... It was, I made movies that I wanted to watch and I've written songs I wanted to hear and I've read books that I can stand to read. Um, and you know, it's, I don't, I don't know what it all amounts to, but it, you know, I don't know. I worked what hard does at it. What anything amount to? Well, there's that. Exactly right. Not to get too weird and philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, ask myself that question all the time, so. No, I mean, I do that constantly. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you have exactly the same kind of neuroses that I do where if I'm having trouble sleeping, I just immediately, my brain's like, well, you're going to be dead soon. So you might as well panic oh, about yeah. that. You know? Oh, wow. I'm so happy. Can we call that a club? Is like, yeah. Yeah. We could definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The staying I mean, wide awake and thinking about death club. Yeah. It's, it's just why I go to sleep to like old episodes of Mystery Science Theater, because if I can, even though I've heard the fucking jokes four million times at this point, if I can just be hearing other people's like words and thought processes, then I'm ignoring my own, which I need to in a big way. Like I should just absolutely 
spend the no money that I have left to go to therapy and get anti-anxiety medication. But I don't really, you know, financial situation to do that yet. Um, so as somebody who's in therapy and on anxiety medication, you're still going to need the background stuff. I, okay. That's see, this is what I, this is, it's good to be vindicated, even if it's in the most uh, painful way possible. It's like, you know, you can only talk about it so much. There's only so much the therapist can help you with. Right. At a certain point, you're still going to fucking die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, you can't therapy your way out of that, you know. And I don't really feel like taking a bunch of mind-altering drugs to get to a better state of acceptance of my place in the universe. Because if I do that, then I'm going to probably stop wanting to do all the shit that I do. And then what am I going to do with myself? I don't know. Yeah. Become just a normal business guy. Yeah, who wants to fucking do that? Be Edward Norton in the beginning of Fight Club. <laughs> you know, before the breakdown. Right, yes, before the appearance of Brad Pitt. Yes. Um, yeah, no, that doesn't sound very fun to me. You don't I mean, like the Ikea lifestyle? No. No. I once spent about three hours putting together an Ikea bureau. I, Where'd you, you know, go wrong with that? Why did it take three hours? Because you gotta, you know, you gotta like build the whole fucking thing from scratch. It's uh, you're I'm building in a room your, of IKEA furniture. I'm just like, I don't know if any of it took three hours. Yeah, very long time. Do you have like the huge dresser with the, you know, the you gotta like build the tracks, that the, the, the the drawers go on, and all that stuff. I have a few bookshelves. I have my cool TV stand. You know, that's another millennial thing. Or maybe it's a me thing. We don't have dressers. Aha. There you go. So I win. Vindicated yeah. once more. Maybe. Um, hey, but the standing desk I'm on right now. Very Ikea. good. Ikea. I should have a standing desk because my posture is fucking terrible. And my couch is like slowly giving me malformed spine. Um, I shouldn't say slowly. It probably already succeeded. I would say also anyone who's on a computer for a long period of time or is a big reader, you're, you're bound to have that. Yeah. Because usually, instead of, like, how you're supposed to posturally, like, kind of bring it towards your face, you usually just kind of lean down. Yeah. No, it's true. And that's, you know, that's the other wonderful thing of being a professional film critic is that your entire life is spent sitting. <laughs> sitting to watch, sitting to write. I love trying to explain that to other people, that, like, that's literally, like, your job is to consume culture. Yeah. And people are like, come on, don't you ever work? And it's like, this is work. This is work. Yeah. Like I'm actually having to think about this on a much deeper level than you're just enjoying it. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the, that's why part of why the new Kelly Reichert movie is so good is because it gets people to start thinking about the idea that art is labor and thus every process of creation and or, you know, dissection of art is also labor. But because we don't want to, you know, adopt that attitude in this country. Everybody is on fucking welfare who takes part in any part of this. Um, but yeah, I think about that shit all the time where it's like, you know, I, I worked, I was, I was writing criticism, you know, several pieces a week and I was working in two, I was working in a bar and a restaurant at the same time. And like, you know, all this to barely keep the lights on. There's just no, appreciation i mean that's not even the word that's like appreciation would 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 take into consideration that anybody wanted it there's just no (laughs) thought given to the idea that the stuff that people consume all the time is hard fucking work 
it's it you know whether it's you know recording an entire goddamn album of songs that you wrote or fucking writing the thing that explains the movie you didn't get it's like it, it you know this stuff all comes from somewhere but there's just no infrastructure for it i mean it's not like you just watched a shit ton of John Ford movies and just like <laughs> did a synopsis of each one. Right. Exactly. Right. It's yeah. yeah. It's like, the, there you go. Publish it, please. Yes. <laughs> Money, please. Here's the, the, here's the plot of every John Ford movie. And sentence. two thumbs up. Yeah. It, two thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe t- no thumbs for when it's really, really racist. But. That's right. Yes. No. At that point we'll just give them, I don't know, the middle finger perhaps. Whoa, wouldn't that have been hilarious if uh, <laughs> that was an option back in if, the day? If, if Siskel, I mean, I feel like Siskel and Ebert gave each other the middle finger quite a lot. Um, those guys, as much as they loved each other, they fucking hated each other. Because <laughs> that would have, like, drawn me into wanting to watch said movie. Yeah. <laughs> as we discussed, like, with basement movies, kind of like mm-hmm. two middle fingers high up. That's right. Ebert and Roper give it two middle fingers. Um no, I mean, you can, I have to imagine that that had, that had to have come up at some point during their many years on television because they were, they were on TV for 25 years, something like that. Um, Dear God, and, that long. Yeah, because they started, they were, they were on, I went, like, maybe it was like Chicago Public Access or something like that. I forget the exact, the, the particulars of this, but they were, they were on TV in the early, in the late 70s. You know, so like their heyday of the TV show was the 80s through the 90s. And then Gene died of a brain tumor in, I think, the year 2000. And that's when um, Richard Roper took over. Um, and that was only on the air for probably four or five years. And then Roger got cancer um, and that he lost the ability to speak. And so that sort of put the kibosh on that. But he still had the, the revamped at the movie show with Ignati Vishnevetsky and Christy Lemire. And, of course, child critic Lights Camera Jackson. Um, in uh, 2011, I think, was when they brought that back. That was uh, a misfire, if ever there was one. So, before we wrap up, <laughs> two questions. Yes. Okay, one, if while filming a movie, what weird-ass music would you have playing in the background? Oh, gosh. Um, that's... An interesting question because I like when I'm writing screenplays and stuff, you know, it's fairly easy to sort of suss out the vibe of a piece and sort of keep that alive. But the problem is, is that if you're making like a horror movie and, you know, I wrote it to Kronos Quartet playing, you know, Alfred Schnitke or something like this, um, the having that on in the background would probably just unnerve people to the point where they would want to get off set. <laughs> um, but you know, like I, we, we do, you know, like on our, on our sets, we did sort of, you know, make it a point to kind of make sure that music was never far away from the experience of making it because, you know, you want people to enjoy themselves and everything. So like, whether it was just us playing as a joke, you know, Eddie money, or Rick Astley. Okay, that's uh, better. Yeah, that's, you know, that kind of thing. I was on a set one time. It was a movie. It was I was the cinematographer. I was not directing it. And I kept playing um, Weird Science on the, on the house's, like, Alexa speakers at odd intervals. Just, like, I mean, it was because I was, like, having kind of a miserable time. And I was just trying to make myself laugh a little bit. But also, 
I don't know. I thought it was funny. I'd be the person on set being like, whoa, that's lit. I love it. <laughs> I love that fucking song. I do science too. is good, man. I'm um, sorry. Like, if that happened at any other, like, random, like, moment in my life and that song just popped on, I'd be like, this is a good vibe. This yeah. is good. This is very good. It's, you know, that's why the soundtracks at bars and restaurants are so important. That was when I worked at Astoria Beer and Cheese um, in Queens. I revamped their playlist system, which was one of a thousand things that did not endear me to the guy who was the kitchen manager, because I invented Country Sundays, where we played country music, like great, you know, old Hank Williams and Buck Owens and uh, Loretta Lynn and uh, Tammy Wynette and just, you know, all the fucking great classic country stuff leading up to about like Dwight Yoakam and like uh, and he fucking hated it. He couldn't stand it. He was like, I don't think people want to hear this. And I would like pull all the customers. I was like, you guys like Country Sunday? He's like, yeah, we love it. It's like, great. Fuck you. <laughs> We're keeping it. And the minute I left when COVID struck, they took, they got rid of Country Sundays and they also put the sandwich I had invented on the menu, but they took my name off of it. <laughs> How dare they? Tell me I about know. the sandwich. Oh, it was good because I, so, and you know, we've made it at this point, um, an hour and a half. It, well, I guess was six hours, like total with the, all the podcasts beforehand without me mentioning this. So I feel very proud of myself, but I'm vegan. So, um, I, uh, I basically invented a sandwich out of all of the like other stuff they they had for their like meat cheese sandwiches. So it was a pretzel bun because thankfully it was one of the pretzels that didn't have dairy in it. Um, pepper and arugula and tomato and uh, like a chipotle aioli and um, two kinds of pickle. Um, and it was. It was just amazing. It was just so fucking good. <laughs> You're making me want a sandwich, that's, which is good. It's around that time almost. That's exactly right. Yes, this is, again, this is the job of the critic is to make you want to eat the sandwich, whether that's a movie or read a book. I'll or... give you that sandwich two thumbs up. Exactly right. And it was called The Scoutmaster. Um, oh, come on. That is I a know. great name. It was a great name. And then, uh, to spite me, uh, Carlos took, uh, took my name off the sandwich when he put it on the permanent menu. All because your country Sundays. Well, that and because I was generally very disrespectful to this guy. Um, but then again, he was like, you know, I know that working in a bar is only basically only the province of alcoholics, but this guy showed up hammered most days. Um, and he would like, it just had these like long rambling conversations with me that wouldn't go anywhere about how like important the, the 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 role of the editor is in movies and stuff like that and it was just like kind of keep lapping himself when talking i was like can i leave please can i please get the fuck out of here um see that's why with one job i actually feigned a hearing disorder oh fuck that's good i should have yeah. done that because i can't really hear anyway because again so many years playing really loud music yeah, it's so great when you're just like, I, I can't hear so well out of this ear. So anytime they talk, you just have to eventually be like, what, what? And then they just get <laughs> sick and tired of you saying what, so they stop talking to you. Yeah, I should have. My dad tried to warn me because he's got hearing aids now. And just like, I was in bands. I know what it does to your hearing. You should probably turn some of this music down. And of course, every kid says, no, thank you. And uh, plays it, <laughs> plays their music extremely loud. I will say it is one of the few features I really like on the iPhone with the AirPods where it actually shows if you have it too loud for too long of a time, whether you have to turn it lower because it could be damaging your hearing. 
Um, because my ears are oddly shaped, I could never really fuck with ear pods. Um, I have to really? do over the ear ones. Um, but even those are not very good because I have attached earlobes. Um, so I get a different kind of pain from the way that they press oddly on the way. I have a million problems, I guess, is really what this is coming down to. Okay, tell me a person in the art world who doesn't have a million weird problems. I mean, we all do. I don't know. At a certain point, you know, like when you get enough money, don't you sort of, don't your problems sort of fade away, you know? Does Matthew Barney still have problems? I want to say, does Steven Spielberg have any of his social issues anymore? I think he's fine. I think he's fine. I mean, he even swears in interviews now. Yeah, he, he's full of himself. He loves it. I love Steven yeah. Spielberg, and he does I'm, too. I love him. I love him. I think he's just wonderful. I can't wait for Bullet. So the last question I was going to ask is, what do you think the next thing you're going to write is? Um, do you mean like like just in general or book-wise? In book general, book-wise, anything? Um, it'll What's probably be a project. Um, so we're, we're trying to make uh, a movie in December, um, knock on wood that everything continues to go sort of as well as it has been barring a handful of, um, uh, uh, heartbreaking setbacks, but that's, that'll sort of determine the next bit that depending on how well any part of that goes, it, it, it determines whether or not I've got time to work on something like a book because like the editing process is going to be very long and blah, 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 blah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it kind of has to, like, you know, Toby Hooper came about because I was, like, really upset um, in 2014, 2015, watching the movie The Mangler and just being like, this movie fucking shreds. Why does nobody like this? And realizing that that was true of, like, 90% of Toby Hooper's output. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And then... I think we um, only know, like, his two big ones. Yeah, it's true. It's like, yeah, some of them know Salem's Lot some of them know Poltergeist, but a lot of people don't even know that he directed Poltergeist. Um, and then Poltergeist kind of stands out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, good movie. But, uh, anyway, so I just really wanted to kind of give him his moment in the sun, unfortunately, because the publisher who first bought the book um, evaporated into thin air one day. Um, it took me a long time to find a replacement publisher for it. Um, Welcome and to by the literary that, world. Yeah, I know. And like by that point, Hooper had died in 2017, so I just was like, eh. But anyway, um, so but that was literally, that was a very strong impulse to be like, I want to do this. Whereas the other thing was, I was just knee deep in this project of writing about Ford and realized I had, you know, a book's worth of stuff there. And then I could shape it into something more than just, you know, little entries about all the movies and try to make a broader point. But, um, I don't know, because there are a lot of people that I'd like to write about, but I don't know how much stuff there is in a lot of these, you know, bodies of work where, like, I'd love to write about Andre de Paz, who is this sort of semi-forgotten by all but cinephiles studio director um, who emigrated from Hungary in, uh, in the 40s and became just this incredible one-of-a-kind kind of studio hand. Um, I, you know, I really like to write about him there are a number of modern directors that i'd like to write about like Shyamalan, but he's not done directing yet so it would feel like an incomplete study um so i don't i don't know but i'm going to be writing a lot more screenplay stuff um in the next little while just like there are ideas that i've been sitting on for years that i'd like to finally get down and you know try to have stuff to show to people if uh, if the opportunity presents itself um 
and that's the other thing too, like memoir stuff, like, you know, obviously the first 10 years of, where at this point, 12, 13 years of making movies, there have been a million, <laughs> million fucking stories, but, you know, hopefully there will be even more. Um, so I don't know if it's a good idea to start writing those down yet. Um, but, uh, certainly that could be an option down the road. I'll say don't write the memoir until you're at least 60. Yeah. I was going to say I'm, you know, 34. So I don't think that there's any rush. We're not Um, at that point. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Um, it was just, yeah, the, the outlandishness of some of what's happened is the only reason that I would give it a, uh, give it a thought. I'll but also, like, you're not Lena Dunham. It, it's too soon. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> I love that this is the first time on this podcast I've actually been able to do a dig on Lena Dunham. But yeah, see, we both got saying you're able to say you're a vegan. I did a dig on Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham. <laughs> and they kind of go hand in hand, those two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're very much in the same realm. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks for being on here. I'll throw my recommendation really quickly. I think you should do a book about Spanish horror movies. That'd be great. I would I would love to do that. I need to get at, you know, somewhere in the world there has to be a great expansive archive of history of production of the of, of the sixties and seventies. If I could if I could get my hands on that. I would love to write that book because that's... I would read that. Well, thank you very much. And not that my opinion is the end all, but... Listen, uh, one person saying I'd read that is more than there were yesterday. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) So I'll take it. All right, that was Scout Tafoya. Grab a copy of his book, but God made him a poet watching John Ford in the 21st century from With an X Books. And check out some of his video essays on Vimeo at Honors Zombie Films. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the proper spellings and links. And, as always, please check out our Twitter at PodHealing and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us support by going onto Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review or subscribing to us on Spotify. We'll be back next Saturday with an off-the-record episode with Jessamine Violet. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for listening to the show. Mm-hmm.